Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Kind of here. Good morning, everybody. Hey, that's good. My name's Steve Wallen. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. My name is Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church, and I'm uh, so glad you're here. I want you to imagine something for me as we get started this morning. I want you to imagine that you are invited to a party, and it's a party that you're not really looking forward to. You're not going to know anyone there, and so I can already sense the anxiety in the room starting to escalate, but uh, you decide you want to go. It's really important that you go, and so you go to the party, and you get there, and the host or hostess, who you know, is standing outside, and there's a, uh, a high-top table with name tags on it and Sharpie markers, a uh, name tag that looks like this. Hello, I am, and um, you grab one, and you start to write your name, and the host goes, now wait, before you do that, Here's what I want you to do. I've asked everybody to do this. Instead of writing your name on the name tag, I want you instead to just write a word or two that defines you. All right? We want to get people, help people get to know each other. And so instead of writing your name, I want you to write one or two words that describe you. What do you write? Now, for a lot of us, we might write an occupation, a job, right? I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a, an architect. Or I always wanted to pretend I was an architect, you know? I'm a, I'm a landscape. That didn't go over well in the first service either. I don't get it. I like that uh, joke. I'm a CEO. I'm unemployed. I'm a student. You know, maybe you write something that has to do with an occupation. Maybe it's a re- relational thing that you put. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm so-and-so's husband, so-and-so's wife. Uh, moms and dads, maybe you know, I'm so-and-so's mom. Maybe that's how they know you at the soccer field or uh, at the dance recital. They only know that, you don't, they don't know your name, but they only know, or the bus stop. You know, that's, that's so-and-so's mom. I know who that is. Um, maybe for you, you'd write a hobby or you'd write an interest. I'm a runner. I'm a cyclist. I'm a fisherman. I'm uh, a dancer. I'm a gardener. I'm a vegan. I'm a Colts fan. You know, whatever you would put on that name tag. Maybe for you, it's something from your past. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a cancer survivor. I'm a veteran. What would you write? Because the chances are the word or words you would choose to write on that name tag are the word or words that you think define you. They're the words that tell you who you are, or at least you think they do. Well, so today we're starting this brand new series called Identity Crisis. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to be studying the very short New Testament book of Ephesians. And the reason that we wanted to call this Identity Crisis and the reason that we chose Ephesians to study is because the book of Ephesians has everything to do with our identity and who we are in Christ. In fact, we're going to, uh, we've asked you, we asked you last week to read a chapter of Ephesians every day. And we said, if you read a chapter of Ephesians every day, then after six weeks, you'll, read, you'll have read the entire book of Ephesians, uh, which is a big deal because some of you, some of us have never read an entire book of the Bible before. And in six days, you could have read an entire book of the Bible and a very meaningful one. And then if you keep doing that over these eight weeks, you will have read the book of Ephesians eight times. And what that means is by the time you've read it eight times, you'll start to anticipate things that are coming. You'll start to understand what the author is saying, and you'll start to memorize maybe some of the key passages in this book. And let me tell you why we love this book so much, why we want to spend eight weeks in this very short book of Ephesians. So much of what we talk about at church has to do with behavior, right? I get up here every week, and I say, hey, Bible says do this and don't do that right? Scripture tells us that we shouldn't be doing this. We should avoid that, and we should do this instead. Uh, um, But the basis of all this activity should be rooted in who you are, right? That, That you only behave a certain way 
because of who you are. So, for instance, if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because of how you behave, but hopefully you behave in a certain way because Christ has changed your life, right? Parents, we need to understand this, all right? Because we can easily fall into the trap, moms and dads. I fall into this trap all the time. We can fall into the trap that our main goal as a parent is to fix our kid's behavior and to keep them out of trouble. You know, to raise nice, well-behaved young men and women. We all want that, I think, uh, for our kids, but there's danger in that. And the danger is that if your parenting is all about correcting your child's behavior, about behavior modification, you're always correcting that behavior, then once they leave your side and go to college or go get their apartment or go into the workforce or whatever, they don't know how to behave. They don't know how to act because you've always been there to show them. So as parents, our job instead is to help them develop their identity and really understand who they are and who they are under God. And that teaches them and they will act out of that. I am this, so I do this. And so the book of Ephesians spends a lot of time In fact, half of the book, fully half of the book, the first three chapters, on this who we are part before spending the second half on the how we should live part. And the truth is, many of us have a hard time knowing or remembering who we are in Christ. And so Ephesians spends a good time building that foundation for us. We need a foundation under us, right? It's like, um, uh, how many of you have seen the movie Karate Kid? Yeah, I'm not talking about the Jaden Smith one. I mean, the original Ralph Macchio, Elizabeth Shue, right? Pat Morita, uh, you know, sweep the leg. You got a problem with that? No sensei, you know, wax on, wax off. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The original Karate Kid. If you haven't seen it, I'll just bring you up to speed. Ralph Macchio plays a boy, Daniel, who is trying to learn karate, and he's learning from uh, Mr. Miyagi. Uh, and, uh, well, he thinks he's learning karate from Mr. Miyagi, but what Mr. Miyagi's having him do is doing chores around the house, right? He's having him uh, wax the floor and paint the fence and uh, things like that, and so, or wax the cars and sand the floor. I've got to get that right. And, uh, and so he takes Daniel out on a boat, and Daniel says, when am I going to learn karate? When am I going to learn karate? Oh, you're learning karate already. When am I going to learn to punch? Daniel says, when am I going to learn to punch? Because that's so much of, that's, that's where you are when you're learning karate. It's like, what am I going to do, right? How am I going to punch? And so Mr. Miyagi's got him out on a boat, and he's telling Daniel about all the things that he's learning. And Daniel stands up on the, you remember this scene? He stands up on the um, bow of the boat, and he's punching. He goes, yeah, but Mr. Miyagi, where am I going to learn to punch? And Mr. Miyagi takes the sides of the boat, and he rocks it back and forth, and he goes, you learn to punch after you learn balance. And he pulls the boat up, right? And Daniel falls in the water. Because he doesn't have his legs under him. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have his foundation set right, right? And so what Paul does, and we'll talk about Paul in a minute, but what he does in the book of Ephesians, he spends a lot of time building that foundation. And so many times we need to have that foundation in understanding who we are. And so if you have your Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians is a New Testament book. It's about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. Uh, If you you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this somewhere around you. You can pick up. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that home with you. That's yours to keep. And so uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is on page 814 in this Bible, if you have that one in front of you. And uh, I want to talk to you for a few minutes a little bit about the book of Ephesians before we get into reading it. And so uh, Ephesians is part of a section of the New Testament that we call, uh, commonly called the epistles. And maybe you've heard that word before and maybe you think, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. Ephesians is actually a letter uh, written, and there are a section of books in the New Testament that are letters written by a variety of authors. This one is written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul was a persecutor of Christians in his early life. 
He actually had a hand in killing uh, some Christians. We see in the book of Acts, he was, had a hand in killing Stephen, uh, who was martyred, one of the first martyrs in the church. Now, we downplay this sometimes, this, this early part of Paul's life, because he had this dramatic conversion, and most of his life, um, he spent uh, proclaiming the word of God. But what happened, I mean, think about today, if you think about a group like ISIS, they are brutally killing Christians. And somebody like the Apostle Paul was part of a group like that. But then he had this amazing conversion as one day he was walking on the road to Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria. And uh, he was walking, and Jesus encounters Paul in the flesh. He comes down from heaven, which is a problem because Jesus had already died and had risen from the dead and had ascended into heaven. And Paul is walking to Damascus, and he is confronted by Jesus in the flesh, who says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, as you would do if you met a dead man, probably, Paul has this remarkable conversion, and he becomes a follower of Jesus, and in fact, he becomes one of the most prolific church planners the world has ever known. He was the first apostle, really, to venture outside the area of Jerusalem, and so he starts planning these churches all over the known world. Now, one of the cool things about the book of Ephesians, one of the reasons I personally love it so much, is it's one of the earliest books that was ever written in the New Testament. You wouldn't know that by its placement where it is, but Ephesians was probably written somewhere around 62 AD. That's about 30 years or less than 30 years after Jesus died. And so if you think about that from a modern perspective, 30 years ago is what, 1984, right? So 84, 85. How many of you are alive during 1984 or 85 and remember what happens? Good, most of the room in this service. It wasn't quite as big in the last service. But um, so if I were to write you a letter and tell you something that happened in 1984 and it didn't really happen and you were there, what would you do? You'd probably... Like, contradict me, right? You'd probably write me a letter back, or you'd say, there's no way, that didn't happen. I was there. If I'd have said, hey, remember 1984 when Ronald Reagan died? You would have said, no, that didn't happen in 1984. I was there, right? Because it was only 30 years ago, and we all remember what happened 30 years ago if we were alive. Well, that's what happens in Ephesians. So Paul's writing about these events that happened, and there's nobody writing back contradicting what he said. He wouldn't, this letter wouldn't have made it out of the first century if it was full of lies. And so the cool thing about that is Paul's writing this letter uh, 30 years after these events happened to people who were mostly alive when they happened, and it somehow survived for 2,000 years, which gives me hope that there's a lot of truth contained in this letter. So anyway, Paul planted many churches. One of the largest and most prominent was in a place called Ephesus. And this letter likely was written to the people in that church probably eight to ten years after Paul planted the church. So he spent some time. He planted this church. Uh, He spent two years with the people there and then went on to plant some other churches. Some other things happened, amazing things. You can read about it in the book of Acts. But eight to ten years later, he's hearing about uh, what's going on in this church. And so he decides to write them this letter that we now know as Ephesians. Now, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the the place of Ephesus itself. Uh, Ephesus was a large cosmopolitan coastal city. It's located in what we now know as Turkey on the Aegean Sea, and so it's a port city. It was a very large city for the time and the region. Probably a quarter of a million people uh, lived in the city of Ephesus. Uh, If you were to walk through the streets of town, you would see such landmarks as uh, the Temple of Diana, which is an incredible place. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you would see uh, the Colosseum in Ephesus, which was a 25,000-seat stadium. Now, if you can imagine, there's 250,000 people living in Ephesus. 
So a 25,000-seat stadium seats about a tenth of the population. So that'd be like Indianapolis having a 150,000-seat stadium. So it's a pretty big place, right? Big stadium, lots of athletic and uh, artistic events happen there. 25,000 seats. It had cup holders, had a club level, had a retractable roof. No, I'm just kidding. It didn't have any of that. But it was a pretty incredible place. And so um, this, the uh, stadium would have been used for all kinds of artistic and athletic endeavors. It was a very culture-rich place. And so there was a lot of pride in coming from Ephesus. It's a lot like you might encounter when you meet somebody today who's from New York City or Chicago, right? They always think that whatever comes out of their city is the best. So they're, they're uh, Bears fans and Chicago-style pizza, right? Or they're Yankees fans and New York-style pizza. I don't know why it always comes down to pizza, but everybody always argues over whose pizza is the best. It's the pride that comes from being in a large city. The people in Ephesus would have had that kind of pride. Or like the pride that comes from being uh, from a large high school or a certain high school and having a certain mascot. Like I was, I'm from Ben Davis High School. We had the Giants. Uh, that's a great high school mascot, the Giants, big purple guy, right? um, Turn to the person next to you and tell them who your high school mascot was. Who's your high school mascot? Shamrocks. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, So imagine the pride that comes from being from a place like Polka, West Virginia, P-O-C-A, Polka, West Virginia. You know Polka's um, mascot? The Polka Dots. Would you like to be from Polka and have the Polka Dots? Or how about Hoopston, Illinois? Hoopston, home of the corn jerkers, the Hoopston corn jerkers? Laurel Hill High School in Florida is the home of the Laurel Hill Hobos. That's a great mascot and an even better picture, I have to say. That's a great, I love that we use the pixelated picture. How about Watersmeet, Michigan? Anybody from Watersmeet? You know the Watersmeet Nimrods? Great quality mascot. Uh, anybody from Oklahoma in the room? We had some Oklahomans first service. Yeah, Oklahoma, you know Hooker, Oklahoma, the Hooker Horny Toads? Yeah, great mascot right there. How about uh, New Berlin? Illinois, New Berlin, Illinois, the home of the pretzels, the New Berlin pretzels. That's a fearsome mascot, right? Or how about Frankfurt? Anybody from Frankfurt, Indiana? Home of the the hot dogs. Home of the hot dogs, right? Yeah, the scary hot dogs. I think I saw that dachshund actually at the farmer's market yesterday. He tried to bite my ankle. So there's pride, right, in coming from a great high school, a great city. There's pride in coming from Ephesus. In fact, what we see uh, as Paul's writing this letter probably is that a lot of the pride, come, there's a lot of pride in being from Ephesus. A lot of their identity was tied up in being Ephesian. And it's likely that Paul heard about that and understood that. And so he writes this letter to help them understand their identity, remind them of who they are, and to tell them later what that means for their life. So we're going to start in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 1 is where we're going to start. We're going to read the first 14 verses today. I'm going to try not to interrupt too much. I'm going to try to read all the way through it and then come back and tell you what it's about. So Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, he's the writer, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to stop right there. And I'm really going to try not to interrupt very much, I promise. (laughs) But that phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, is the key phrase in this entire book. And so if you have a pencil or pen, if you don't mind writing your Bible, you might underline that, you might highlight that. If you've got the YouVersion app open, you might highlight it in your app. Because here's the deal. Paul's going to spend the rest of this letter reminding us that this right here, okay, if you're a Christian... In this letter he's writing to the church, okay, so he's writing mostly to Christians. If you're a Christian, this is your identity, right? He uses the phrase in Christ or in him or some variation of that about 11 times just in these first 14 verses. And so, in fact, you can write this in your notes if you have the uh, sermon notes. As a Christian, your identity is found in Christ. 
If you're a Christian, this may be the only reason you're here today, is to be reminded of that truth, that important tidbit. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. And even though that this letter was not written to you, I believe that there's so much in this series that God's going to have something great for you in this series. And what you're going to see if you stick around for the next eight weeks is you are going to get an eight-week inside look at what it means to be a Christian. And so I hope you'll stay. All right, verse two, let's go on. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what God's all about, the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included. Now, I just want to stop right there because I, I almost made it, all right? I almost made it. But I want to say this, that Paul is writing from a Jewish perspective. He was Jewish by culture, by, uh, by birth, and by his upbringing. He was Jewish, so he was among the first. The nation of Israel was the first chosen by God. But he's saying to the people in Ephesus who were largely from a Gentile background, okay, who came to Christ uh, throughout their life. They were not in Christ by birth. He's saying that you also were chosen. And so he's, that's why when you see the we and you, that's what he's talking about. So just to clarify that. <clears throat> uh, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now you can see how Paul spends this entire passage, all right, this couple paragraphs, the first part of this letter, reminding people what Christ has done for them and who that makes them. There's no instruction in here. There's no do this and don't do that. Uh, Instead, he spends the first sentences of this letter, you know, the critical sentences, really a letter, by the way, that was probably expected to be read aloud to the church. So it was almost a sermon of type uh, when they were assembled, just reminding them of who they are. Now, let me stop there for a moment and talk about why this matters to us. Okay, why, it, it, why does it matter what Paul wrote to this, uh, this church and this city in the Middle East 2,000 years ago? Why does that matter for our lives? Well, it wasn't easy living in a Christ, as a Christian in Ephesus. I mean, in addition to being a spectacular and wealthy and cosmopolitan city, uh, it was a corrupt city. Ephesus was a corrupt place. Sexual sin was everywhere. You know, people had varying opinions on what was sexual immorality and what was okay. I mean, there was prostitution was rampant. Now, for instance, because Ephesus was a port city, it was well-known stop for sailors uh, on their journey to come and frequent Ephesus. In fact, some archaeologists I read have recently uncovered a brothel that was connected via underground tunnel to the library. 
Because most wives wouldn't have any issue with their husbands going to the library to study, right? But they might wonder, why, why is he reading so many books all of a sudden? But there was a brothel connected uh, underground tunnel to the library. Why is it important for us to really understand what life in Ephesus was like? Because sometimes I think we tend to wonder if the Bible really has anything to say about our present circumstances, don't we? About our society and about what it's like to live, live life in the 21st century in the United States of America. Well, the point is this. Ephesus was really no different from where we live today. These people were part of a church. They were worshiping our God, the same God that we worship now 2,000 years later. But they were living in a culture that was very accepting of sin and depravity. And it's no different from what you and I deal with today. And as an example that these, uh, of, of these Christians and the church in Ephesus, uh, I think this example it gives us is that Christianity can flourish even in really difficult contexts. That even while living in the world, Christians can understand our identity in Christ, and understanding that can be the key to making a difference in our our lives and the lives of those around us. And so Paul says over and over again, you are in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Jesus Christ before anything else. And what he says to them, he says to us before anything else, you are in Christ. If you're a Christian, your identity is in Jesus Christ. And that is significant. And it has power for so many things in our lives. And what I want to do in the time we have left today is I want to talk about four of those places where this fact, the fact that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ, where you can find your identity in that, there are four places, I think, that 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 helps us in our life. Number one is this. It means that you are different. It means that you are different. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country, traveled in a a foreign place? Uh, Do you notice how you stand out when when you're in a foreign country? It might be... Uh, the clothes you're wearing or the things you're carrying. It might be certainly the language you speak. may even, depending on where you go, might be the color of your skin, right? You stand out. I I remember uh, several years ago, probably 12 or 13 years ago now, I was in Paris. I spent 10 days in Paris. And because I was going to be traveling a lot within the city, I bought an unlimited uh, Metro Pass to take the subway. And uh, I remember those days sitting on the subway, going from place to place and listening to all the conversations around me. And you hear so many different languages, and you hear mostly French, obviously. You could pick that out. But occasionally, you hear somebody speaking Spanish or speaking German or speaking Dutch or something else. And then uh, every once in a while, I hear someone speaking English, and my ears kind of perk up, right? Because I recognize that voice. I recognize that language. I know what they're saying. I understand what they're talking about. And so we would strike up so many conversations just with people in the metro, like, where are you from? And, and what are you doing here? And how long are you here for? And you have, because you're different from the other people around you, right? And so, but you have that one thing in common. And so you would have, I would have conversations with people that I would never have back here in the United States. If, if I heard somebody speaking in English in a restaurant here, you don't think anything about it, right? You almost drown that out. But it stands out to you when you're in a culture where you're the different one. Well, it's no different being a Christian. That you tend to pick out the language of people around you who are using language that you're used to hearing, right? And so uh, give you an example of that. How many of you have watched this show called American Ninja Warrior on NBC? You watch the show? A lot of you, good. So um, I'd heard a lot about this show. And uh, people were saying, oh, you got to watch this. It's great. If you haven't seen it, it's a little bit like uh, American Gladiators from a few years back and that there's all these physical challenges, but it's different in that they're not fighting against another person. They're uh, doing this obstacle course. And so uh, the one I watched probably three weeks ago 
was uh, the second to the last episode, so it was one of the final rounds. It was stage two of the final, and they have this very difficult obstacle course, which is very heavy on upper body strength. And these um, men and one woman are trying to make it through this obstacle course, and I saw contestant after contestant just falling in the water. They would get to one point, and they'd try to grab a chain and swing around, and they fall off, or they, they'd try to uh, bring themselves across this hand bridge, and they'd fall down. And like uh, I, I'm kind of reading and kind of watching this out of the corner of my eye, and then after after about 20 people have fallen in the water, uh, this guy comes, the weatherman, Joe Morofsky, right? You know this guy, Joe Morofsky? Uh, so yeah, I know Joe Morofsky. So Joe Morofsky comes up and uh, very humble, very quiet. He, he gets and he uh, somehow makes it all the way through the obstacle course. And the crowd goes crazy. And I'm, I'm like reading my book and I'm watching him. I'm like, that's pretty incredible. It's quite a feat of strength, you know, that he makes it. And um, so after he's done and he, uh, you know, catches his breath, the sideline reporter comes down and asks him, said, Joe, how did you do that? And I'll never forget because I'm, I'm reading, I'm watching, I'm kind of like half paying attention. And then he says, well, that wasn't my strength out there. That was God's strength. And all of a sudden, I'm glued to the TV set. Because here's a guy that's speaking my language, right? He sounds different from all the other contestants. And so I looked up for my book. I'm suddenly engrossed in what he has to say because he's speaking my language. In the same way, if you are in Christ, you are different. Later on in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how as Christians, we are fellow citizens with God's people. We're a part of God's household. He says this, I believe, to remind people that even though they were citizens of Ephesus... That didn't define them. They were citizens of heaven first and foremost. He might say to us today, those of us who are U.S. citizens, that yes, you're Americans, but you're Christians even before that. You may remember if you were here a few weeks ago, we took uh, a couple moments before the beginning of the service to pray for the Christians in Iraq who were being persecuted. If you were here, what you may not have known was that right after that service was over, um, there was a couple in the crowd that made a beeline for the stage. They came right up here and almost ran up, and they grabbed my hand and shook my hand and said, hey, I just want to thank you for praying for the Iraqi Christians. My husband and I, we are from Iraq, and, and we have lots of friends who are over there being persecuted. Those are our people. That's our church. And so they were very thankful about that. And as they walked away, I thought, you know what? Those are my people too. That's our church too. That's, in fact, I have more in common with most Iraqi Christians than I have with very many people who are my neighbors here in the United States because we are different. New York Times editorialist Nicholas Kristof, as I understand, it's not a Christian, but there's an article that he wrote recently in the New York Times praising the work of many Christians. This is what he says. He says, evangelicals are disproportionately more likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities More important, they're disproportionately more likely to go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. And then he says, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not particularly religious myself, but those people are different. They're they're foreigners. They're standing out. They're different. Well, last week we had 38 people stand up at Genesis Church and they declared, I want to be different. And we celebrated that. And we cheered and we clapped and we shook our noisemakers and some of us got pelted in the face with beach balls. And by the way, our attorneys have asked that you have to sign a release before you come to the next baptism service. It's not really a big deal. You're not really giving up any of your rights. I just want you to know that that's coming. But the message is, 
message is that when you are in Christ, you are different. The second thing is this. When you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, then you trust God's word. You can trust God's word. Ephesians 1.8 says, With all wisdom and understanding, verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. Now you may think, hear that and think, What? Where is His will? Where has God made known to us His will? It's right here. It's in His word. That's why it's so important, I believe, for followers of Jesus to be reading His word every day in His word. Look, Many of us, the only insight we get into what's in this book and to what's in God's word is on Sunday for one hour and 20 minutes, one hour and 20 minutes in this room. You come to church, you, you fill up on God for a week, the week, and then you hope that you can weather the storms of life when you leave here. But the truth is, we can't give you enough here on Sunday to get you through Monday through Saturday. I can help you understand what scripture says. I can tell you what I know and help you point out what I see in scripture. Cameron and the band can lead you in great songs that have great spiritual truth. But only by reading the word of God can you start to understand the heart of God. Only by being in scripture and drinking in his word can you really understand what your identity in Christ means. That's why we're asking you to read the one chapter of Ephesians every day during this series. Six chapters a week eight weeks. You'll have read it eight times. You'll begin memorizing verses and phrases. You'll be hiding God's word in your heart so that when temptation comes or when your circumstances turn worse, you are equipped with his word to remember who you are and to find your identity. When your enemy speaks lies to you, you know you have an enemy, right? You have a mortal enemy of your soul who wants to kill and destroy you. And when he speaks lies in your ear, you need to have weapons to fight against him. You have to have a weapon in God's word to rebuke him and put him in his place. It'll only happen if you can trust in God's word. Number three is this. Because you are in Christ, you put your hope in heaven. You put your hope in heaven. Our hope is not in this president and not in the next one. Our hope is not in Congress or in Washington, D.C. or in the state capitol or in the military or in a talk radio show. As Christians, our hope is in heaven. In this world, we put our hope in so many things, in our careers, in our achievements, in our relationship, in our spouse, in our retirement account, in our kids turning pro so they can support us in our old age. That's a lot of pressure for one person. When we put our hope in anything other than the promises of God, we are going to be disappointed. Your dearest friend or family member in the world is going to disappoint you someday. The best job you've ever had is going to disappoint you someday. The best young quarterback in the league is going to disappoint you someday. I mean, every earthly kingdom will eventually be a disappointment. But the kingdom of heaven will never, ever disappoint. Paul says in Ephesians 2.9, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And that's the hope we wait for. It's what we long for. It's knowing that even though now we're, we're stuck living in this imperfect, fallen, broken world, that there's another world waiting for us. That that when our work here on earth is done, all of us who are in Christ will inherit a new world, a new place to live, 
A place with no more crying and no more pain and no more disappointment. And we will live with Christ and he will be our God and we will be his people and he will be all we need. Every need satisfied, every desire fulfilled, every hunger sated, every thirst quenched by the one who created us and saved us and numbers the hairs on our head. Maybe you've heard of a man named Nick Voyagech. He's a motivational speaker who was born without arms and legs. Uh, He gets about 5,000 phone calls a week and about 300 speaking requests every week right now. Nick loves meeting with people in difficult circumstances and, and encouraging them to keep a positive attitude, talking to them about how important that is and showing through his actions how you can stay positive even when life throws tough stuff your way. In a recent interview, Nick was asked how he managed to stay so positive and to encourage so many people, even given his circumstances. And he said this. I thought this was so telling. He said, without my faith in God, nothing else makes sense. If this life is it for me, then that's it. But that's not it for me. My hope is in heaven. And my hope is knowing that there is an eternal glory waiting for me. It is while I am here that I can actually use my circumstance to bring someone else to the knowledge of coming to the truth of heaven. In the same way, if our hope is on earth, it's not going to last. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but if you go to Ephesus today, do you know what you'll see? Ruins. It's not there anymore. The temple of Diana is just rocks. And this once great city, so steeped in culture and bustling with activity and full of wealth and studded with architectural gems, it's just a bunch of ruins now. Because we are in Christ, our hope can't be in anything on this earth. It has to be in heaven. Number four is this, the last one. Because you are in Christ, you belong to him. You belong to him. Listen to how rich this language is from the first part of this letter. Verse four says, for he chose us. Think about what it means to be chosen. Whether it's for a kickball team or a boyfriend and girlfriend or even to win a drawing. You know, somebody draws your ticket out of a hat. It's completely random. How exciting is that to be chosen? Well, this is the God of the universe that chose you. Verse five, in love, he adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. You know, we have, my wife and I, we have kids around our house all the time. In fact, on our street alone, there are 23 kids that are middle school and under that live on our street. And some days I swear that all 23 of them are stampeding through our upstairs. But we love having these kids over. We have friends in our connection group and we love their kids and we have uh, nieces and nephews and we love them and the kids from our staff are over at our house uh, occasionally and we love them. And we, there are all kinds of kids that I love. There are very few that I would adopt. And scripture tells us that God has chosen to adopt us. If you are in Christ, he has adopted you as his son or as his daughter. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I'll tell you why it's so important to understand this, that, that God chose you, that he adopted you, that he, you've been redeemed through his blood. If you are in Christ, all right, all of your sin, past, present, and future, all of your sin is forgiven. I want to tell you why it's so important to understand that. We had 38 people baptized last week across both of our campuses. Uh, Some of them have been Christians for a long time, and some of them are pretty new at it. 
And we've got people all the time that are finding their way back to God at this church. And, and here's what happens so often. Somebody will find their way back to God here and they, they, they leave behind their friends who were dragging them down and they stop going to those places they used to go and they stop doing those things they used to do that got them in trouble. But then they don't really know who they are anymore. They say, well, you know, if I, if I don't drink, who am I? If I don't go to those places who am I? If I don't go to those clubs, if I don't hang out with those people, then, then who am I? And for people in that situation, it is so easy just to slip back into that lifestyle, to forget who you are. But you need to remember that you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are different and you can trust in God's word and you can put your hope in heaven and you belong to him. He has marked you. Verse 13 says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Paul's reminding us that if you're in Christ, you're due an inheritance. That, that there's an inheritance coming. We will inherit heaven. Those of us who belong to him, who are God's possession, will one day inherit this glorious place that we read about in scripture. But until then, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide us and to lead us and remind us of who we are. That our identity is not in what we do or where we live or what family we're from or what's happened to us, but that our identity is in Christ. And as we close today, I, I wanna pray that over you. For those of you who are in Christ, I hope this is a great reminder to you that that's where your identity comes from. Not of what you need to do or where you've fallen short, just of who, what God's done for you and who he says you, says you are. That you have a God that loves you and that chose you and adopted you and has claimed you for his own. And if you're not a Christian, I just want to pray for you and, and ask, what is your identity? What is important to you? What are you living for? And is it worth it? And if you get to the end of your life and you find out you got everything that you dreamed of, would it be worth it to you? Or would you wish you had something more? Would you just bow your head with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for who you say we are, that we are in Christ. And for those of us who are Christians and, and believers and followers of yours, that you have promised us that you have put your, you have marked us with your Holy Spirit, that you've adopted us as your sons and daughters, that you have chosen us, and that we are yours, we belong to you. And we are so thankful for that. And God, we need that reminder every day as we face a world where maybe it's not popular to be your child. Uh, it's hard to live and to follow you. And so we thank you for that promise. We thank you for that hope. And we put our hope in heaven, God, that there is a place and a time coming when all will be revealed and we will be there to inherit that kingdom. And Lord, I just pray now for the people in this room who don't know that truth, that aren't in you, aren't in Christ, that hear that and they, they want to be chosen, they want to be adopted, they, they want to be forgiven and redeemed. And if that's you, if you're here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can just pray this uh, prayer with me silently to yourself. Just pray, God, I need you in my life. I admit I've fallen short, that I've, I've sinned, that I've messed up, and I want to accept the free gift that's offered through your son, Jesus, on the cross. God, send your Holy Spirit to live inside of me, 
to guide me, to direct me. I want to be your child. I want to follow you all of my days. God, we thank you. We understand. We know that that change in our behavior can only come from the inside, that it doesn't work on us, on you changing our behavior, but it works on you changing our hearts and our behavior changes from the inside out. And we thank you for that so much. We we thank you for uh, the promises you've given us in Ephesians. And we are just so excited for the next seven weeks of the series. And we get to see what you're going to do in our church and in our lives. We come to you now in a time of worship through song. We praise you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.